Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 56, or is it 57? Uh, Westworld season two, episode seven, Lazy Corchet. Mr. Babcock, we're back with you. Can you hear us? I can hear you now. Oh, wow. So, so listeners, as you all may know from the beginnings of our episodes, we often have technical difficulties. Often it happens to be the case that I speak and Babcock can't hear me, and then he puts in headphones, and then I toggle from speech mode to speaker mode. Uh, or from telephone mode to speaker mode. And often we have to go through the intro like four or five times. So it is particularly appropriate. And I know I've made this metaphor before that we talk about Westworld and their difficulties with uh, technology because we're constantly ourselves running into our own difficulties. Well, so Mr. Babcock, I don't have much of a screed ready for us this time around. I'm, I might just make one one note though before we start that laissez crochet means either the uh, the skinned or the tormented in uh, French. And so uh, skinned is interesting because I know on the one hand, generally to be skinned means to have your skin removed like the the, the rural deity Mar- Marcius who, who once um, in the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology uh, challenged Apollo to a musical playing contest. And in, in so losing, he was himself flayed. And oh, so, yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. Okay. I, I forget exactly what the stakes were. I think it was for Apollo's mother or sister, something like that, something that would make it so that he would be rather upset um, afterwards. And, and, but yet, yet to be skinned as a past participle also seems to mean like to be put into skin. Mm. And, and so what's interesting is that we noticed that in this episode, one of the big revelations is that the park was not meant to make the hosts conscious. That was just a side effect. The whole point of the park was so that humans could have so much data taken from them so that the fidelity of their mind, brain, soul, their control unit, we found out is the name of those spheres, could effectively replicate them like a stack from the show Altered Carbon. And so the whole idea behind this park so far, and this is something we were talking about before we got on, the phone, which made us wonder how are there possibly going to be three more episodes unless we're going to be at different parks the whole time, which would be great, is that the park exists so that humans can attempt to have functional immortality through acting and behaving in a certain way in the park, having their data um, accumulated so that they can then have that data put into a control unit, which then functionally keeps them uh, uh, immortal forever. And the first person to well, there seem to be two people who beta tested this, not only Jim Dalos, but also Arnold or Bernard. Well, it is- seems like Ford is testing this on Arnold. It doesn't seem like Arnold, you know, it's unclear yeah. if Arnold chose to do that, I, right? I agree. Completely. Yeah. It does seem as if Ford <clears throat> chose this. And again, with Ford playing that sort of God in the ethereum or in the, uh, the ethereal world or the heaven world, the cradle world, that place, which is the place of the birth of all things, whether it be the cradle of civilization or the cra- Mesopotamia or the cradle of a child. Um, well, we found him like we, we had suggested earlier that perhaps his, his consciousness was distributed throughout the host, but we did not know at the time that there was a cerebrum sort of um, cache of the personalities of all the hosts kept deep and secret underneath the park. And in that cache, Ford's personality continues to remain where apparently it can remain indefinitely, unlike right. unlike if it were to be embodied 
in uh, an actual body, a host body, because what we've seen with Jim Carlos is that he, um, his personality sort of corrodes over just a few days, uh, even a few weeks. Uh, and so uh, Anthony Hopkins' character, Ford, has to remain in the cradle until he decides to enter into uh, Bernard, where now Bernard seems to have a dual consciousness. He has not only his personality, but also the presence of Ford within him who can occasionally take over his body and make him do things that leave him, well, not morally culpable is the claim that Ford makes. And so what did you think of that? Ford well, popping back Yeah, I found it um, interesting. I thought that he... Uh, so the idea is that he's in the cradle, which is the same thing as the backups, right? Are those two uh, interchangeable terms? Yes, yes. That's where the backups are kept, kept and that is precisely <clears throat> what was blown up by Dolores. Right, okay. So... He ha he he has to leave the backups the cradle and because they're going to be destroyed right and he would right. be destroyed with them yes. and so now the hosts are essentially allegedly free except for Bernard of course who's being controlled by Ford. Um, my question is he he seems to have known he had to leave the cradle right so he directs Arnold or Bernard rather towards him uh, and then he can enter Bernard or something like this. Uh, my question is, was he controlling Dolores? Did he know Dolores would do it? Like, what free will did Dolores have before that point? Because it would seem now that she's destroyed the cradle, she has complete free will. There's no nothing that is able to control her. Unless maybe someone plugged directly into her CP, her, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the processor. You just said the term. The control unit, yeah. Like, if you hardwire into it, you might be able to change something about her, but but now that the cradle is destroyed, I, I, she has complete free will. So my question is, did she have it before? Uh, and, and, or did, did um, Ford just know what was going to happen? Well, um, I, I think that's a great question. And maybe we can go at that obliquely because you just led me to a big thought, which is this, which is whereas the humans are seeking for freedom by means of creating immortality in themselves through the hosts, and effectively keeping themselves imprisoned as prisoners to their own sins forever without release, sort of like Jim Del Delos, the hosts, or at least through the totalitarian Dolores, their strategy is to destroy the backups so that they can actually live perfectly free. And free in that whatever they do completely matters now because they can never be brought back afterwards without their backup models, uh, bodies, and without their backup uh, data, their their minds. So, so in other words, they, they can die. They can die. And so in because they die, every moment now matters because they won't live a cyclical existence like they once did. They might in terms of living out certain patterns, but the time that they occupy will never be the same as it was even the second before now. And when they do die it really matters because they can't come back. And so each one of their choices is infused with massive responsibility now. And so what's interesting is that Dolores has taken freedom by taking on, taking on great responsibility for her choices and giving that responsibility to every single host now, which is similar to a claim that, um, that uh, Ford makes about how all, all the hosts are free. And yet, and yet, Though they are all the same as the man in black claims, that's something that he continues to miss in his Luciferian way when he speaks to Maeve.
And I'd actually like to bounce over to that and then bounce back to this question about whether Dolores was being uh, coached or hardlined in or something, because the man in black seems to not have gotten that the game can go wrong. He seems to have not understood the larger game. The larger game being that in this game, you don't necessarily know the rules nor the end. And so you don't have the safety nets that you once had in regular Westworld. When he sees Maeve, though, he recognizes that she's conscious. He does not recognize that she has the potential actually to hurt him and kill him. She did, then hurts him. And then uh, Lawrence starts to save him. But then we have a, a, a throwback to what Ford said to the man in black when he saved Lawrence's wife this time around. He said, one good deed does not make a hero of you or something similar to that. And yeah. well, what does Lawrence remember? Well, the times when the man in black was utterly cruel, the times we've seen him. And so even he now shoots at the man in black. He's getting his comeuppance. It's, in fact, it seems to be that the physical pain, the physical suffering there is that which is supposed to make him conscious of the game as it actually is now. It seems that his, he just had too much of a bounded understanding of what the game was. And I think that his mistake is sort of the childish, naive mistake that we all make when we're young, which is the game is just for you. I think what has become clear here is that the game can, become, can be played in many ways and it doesn't exist for any one person at all. It doesn't exist for simply the host. It doesn't exist for simply the humans. It exists for all of them together and figuring out how to play it together does seem to be the big the game. Point of the game. Yeah. yeah. If I were to think about even the nature of the world, that seems to be the nature of the world, right? There are all these conscious beings in differing tribes with different customs and roles, differing gods and uh, religions and political systems and weapons and levels of sophistication. But you all are conscious and can learn from each other. So uh, what are you going to do? And it's all part of the one game together. Like the, the, you cannot play the game without all the parts together. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There is no game. Just like there's no, there's no square without four sides. There needs to be something bounded. There needs to be a bounded, yeah. something that uh, draws everything together. And, and, you know, in the case of the Earth, we're all sort of stuck to the planet. And we can say with, that we can go to space, but we, we can't exactly inhabit space, regardless of what our science fiction books uh, attempt to portray to us. I mean, I would say that even space dramas are just extensions of the drama on this world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, it's yes, exactly. It is taking the drama of this world and placing it in a different setting that you can bend the rules for. Which actually, But, but those rules are rules. But those rules are rules. In fact, I, I, I was making the suggestion yesterday that the purpose of fantasy and sci-fi, and perhaps this applies, to, um, this applies to Westworld, is to... So our native environment is a social environment. You notice this even with kids. Like, they'll put faces on everything. Like, if they make a drawing of, like, say, a, a yard with a mom and a son, like the flowers will have faces, the mom will have a face, it will be in fact mostly face, and the son will have a face. Because mm -hmm. our natural environment is not the objective environment, but a social environment. And so what we do when we create fantasy and science fiction is we project that social environment and like say mom, dad, and all the relations of it onto a world with slightly different but consistent rules. So like whether it be Harry Potter and we throw out some magic or it be Westworld and we throw out some science, we're just projecting all the archetypal images, which, uh, which not harness, but which govern our perception onto a world similar but different from this one in order to see what stays the same and what differs. 
much like the much like Ford explains Westworld is a, or uh, Ford helps Bernard understand what Westworld's about. It's projecting the same same rules onto a different world with slight modifications in order to, as you just say, see what's different in order to decode us. That's the whole that's exactly point. Right. And that yeah. seems to be what the point of story itself can be, especially when it's a science fiction or uh, a fantasy story where and rather than simply representing reality perfectly, you represent reality or you create a reality which is slightly different. In fact, you attempt to create it as different as you possibly can. But uh, the the patterns of difference will show up as the same in fantasy and science fiction and any sort of work like that. Like, for instance, there will still be fundamental motivational systems like things will eat each other and things mm -hmm. will lead to sleep and things and beings will uh, fall in love with each other. And in fact, they'll, they'll see through the differences between each other's cultures in order to fall in love. Like a, a comic book series that I recently read which is, I, I think is based on Romeo and Juliet and what Romeo and Juliet would have gone through if they had survived their passion is called Saga. And so the idea is that there's these two alien races that have been at war with each other. One's magical, one's scientific, and yet two find love with each other. And what is the idea behind that? Well, two conscious beings from two different cultures who perceive the world and act in the world very differently can still find something of the of ultimate meaning between each other and can produce something even uh, an, an integrated product that takes the best and the worst of both those worlds and creates something new. And so that makes me think that what, world, what Ford's ultimate idea as a god here, as a reshaper as, or a shaper, is attempting to see what happens when the conscious host and the conscious humans come into collision. Can they... Can they, rather than striking the match and burning everything down, uh, like like in a flood mirror uh, myth, or or like in the um, the Greek myth, uh, which I I mentioned last time, but I've already oh yeah, it's the same story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, yeah, the very same story as Sodom and Gomorrah, though with fire. Um, and I, it's amazing. I remembered the name of those characters last week, but last not last week. Yeah. Um, uh, or basically Zeus and Hermes, uh, Bacchus and Philemon. Very good. I always have oh, to yeah, there you go. Yeah, Jupiter and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, visit the, that two old couple, and they give the finest chicken, and the, the gods laugh, and then the, the mortals say, oh, no, this isn't fit for the gods, and the gods say, no, that's fine. You just need to offer hospitality, what you had. And, you know, it's interesting because it's like a very Christian message to charity. Give what you have. That is the most important thing. And, yeah. well... Perhaps that's what will ultimately connect the hosts and the humans rather than focusing on the differences and the terrible atrocities that they've propagated or that they've, uh, they've done to each other. They can focus on their similarities and the fact that they all have to deal with the existential angst or anxiety of knowing that they will someday die and are burdened with responsibility for their choices, uh, whether they do good or evil, because as conscious beings, they are now... They are now uh, burden with choice. They they now can do good or evil. They are now, they now do for themselves what they once blamed Ford and and either God or the humans for. Correct. They're they are now responsible for their souls. Right. And in fact, yeah. Ford makes a very similar comment to that. He says, "I don't think God on the seventh day rested, but reveled," which yeah. effectively means the exact same thing. And uh, sorry, 
I'm I'm at my school right now, and they're making we, an announcement. <laughs> there's an announcement being made, which I did not expect to happen. So I'm just going to talk through it really quickly and see if okay. I, I um I wanted to connect back uh, the the man in black and Maeve scene where where the man in black seems to not understand Ford's game or or the game itself to. Ford's conversation with Bernard, where uh, where Ford basically says the hosts are, he says, you're more noble and more just than humans. And I don't want you to become like humans because humans are basically capable of the worst things imaginable. Uh, and so he has this line that I, I, I watched it like four times last night because I was just trying to, A, understand literally the words, and then B, also understand the message. Um, and let me see if I can just watch this real quick. He says, uh, uh, no, that's not it. So this is the scene where, where Bernard is learning that he's, um, you know, like that, that Dolores was testing him in order to find fidelity. And then where, I can't find this. No, he's already out of here. So Ford basically says something about all of the goodness would pour out unless, unless we open the door. And just the way he uses that metaphor, and that's when he basically goes into Bernard and, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, and he takes away his free will. And my, my question is, so the door obviously is the title of this season. Um, and I didn't quite understand exactly what he's saying. And I was wondering I if that, go ahead. I need the, I need the direct quote on that one because I'm not okay, sure. Hold on. It's, 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 I'm, I'm watching it on my screen. It's, it's coming up here. It's very soon, I believe. Um, okay, here we yeah. go. I got it right here. All right. Okay. So Dolores, he says she wasn't easily fooled. Uh, and then it cuts to a quick shot of Dolores uh, observing Bernard. You're almost the man I remember. And then Bernard says, how am I different from Delos? Okay. So how am I different than him? They want fidelity, Bernard. And so he gives him a different name. I think that's important also that he's a different person. A faithful self-portrait of the most murderous species since time began. Uh -huh. So that's something that Ford doesn't want to do. He does not want to recreate humans because humans are terrible. Okay. He says, you and all the other hosts are something very different. Uh, an original work, more just, more noble. Uh, hold on. But your very nature, Bernard, ensures they will devour you because they're too good. They're too perfect. And all the beauty of who you are, of who you could be, will be poured out into the darkness forever unless we open the door and then this okay. is when he takes his, his free will away all right so two or three things so uh ford enters into bernard and does seem to be able to at times of doubt for bernard at least one time of doubt step in and do for right. bernard what killing Ber the guys right right what bernard is possibly not capable of doing which is also represented by the lights dimming right consciousness yeah. going down and something taking over we in fact in alk with alcohol, we call that a black out, right? Or, yeah. or even, even if you're fainting, you black out. And so the second thing is that we might be able to interpret this within the framework of, say, the flood, both from Ovid's Metamorphoses and from the Old Testament with Noah. Um, and we do actually have flood uh, imagery in the very first um, episode. episode right, yeah. Bernard which, has which, by the way, side note, allegedly, I was just reading this online just a moment ago, the sector where the, this valley is that, that Bernard says where um, the, the processor is of Abernathy, 
Yes. That is where the water is. That's the valley. Uh, right. It's, it's the same place. So that, that has been flooded. Me. That strikes me as the valley of the shadow of death. And yes. So, and so perhaps what the idea here is that the humans are the original conscious beings that are then wiped out by their own sins, their own flood. They're flooded by uh, that which they have done. And what they have done is through their sins caused tremendous suffering to these beings, which are now capable of wiping them out. And perhaps that's what the flood actually represents. And something interesting just to add to that is that re remember that Ford says, these aren't the choices I'm making. These choices you're making, Bernard. And so Bernard says, you know, are, is that what the story is you're telling? To strike the match? And Ford says, no, that's the story. You know, this isn't my story anymore. It's yours, Bernard. And so there's sort of an interesting irony or potential paradox there, right? Because right when Ford is suggesting that he's giving up control completely, being sort of disembodied, uh, he sort of pulls a, a professor, professor Quirrell from the first uh, um, book of Harry Potter, right? Whereas Voldemort is weak and disembodied, but then he takes on um, sort of embodied form with a human host where he just exists in the back of the head. So he's blind and practically incapable of doing anything, but still sort of alive. And that strikes me as sort of where Ford is now entering into Bernard's body. Bernard is technically in control most of the time, but Ford can guide him uh, through articulation, which is a little bit different from what Maeve is now doing. Um, and I, I would like to consider the differences between. Uh, yeah, what I was thinking about the three characters in control, like the, so this idea of free will specifically boiled down to three characters. You had Dolores changing Teddy and basically like, uh, you know, not changing, not controlling his actions, but changing his character. You have Maeve, of course, uh, forcing. Lines. Yeah, controlling minds, and then you have Ford entering Bernard and seemingly pushing him in certain directions. Showing him the plan. As yeah, 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 well, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's sort of, I know we're jumping around a lot, but let's jump around to um, Dolores seeing Maeve uh, struck down and sure, yeah. sort of making the comment that this is her choice and this is what she wishes to do, referencing back that perhaps she's even choosing to die. It's unclear that she will die, but while Dolores sits stands over her she says what have they done to you and the woman i know was a survivor and it shows that dolores does not know the woman that Maeve has become but what she does allow is she's like if this is your choice i will let you die which is a, a progression for her because in the last with the last two people that she quote unquote knew slash loved teddy who was made to be her romantic interest and her father unlike Maeve and akane she has decided that since she was programmed to have affection for these people, she does not have true affection for these people. And then makes the slip in logic, I would say, of suggesting that those feelings are no longer real and they no longer have real rights, which is, which is a problem because what does that justify her doing? Changing Teddy's personality completely, which has come up for the second time in this episode now, and also removing the control unit from her father's head in order to enact revenge against the humans. And so there, there's a major moral choice for Dolores. Yeah. Uh, was she willing to do what the humans effectively did to her and them, limiting their choices in order to get what she wants? Is her choice as a conscious being therefore more important 
than other choices by other conscious beings? And her answer so far, except with Maeve, has seemed to be yes, which suggests that she's not conscious of what she is as a conscious being, but is currently inflated like the humans were, as if she is sort of a god and yeah. has the right to make these choices for others. Rather than just making her own choices that affect her, um, uh, she's making choices that directly affect, well, the life and personality of those around her, those who she's supposed to love. And, and Maeve calls her out on this. And so we get the first sense scene of Dolores seemingly questioning her own choices. And now that she's truly free from the cradle, she can, she, she can be responsible for those choices. And, and that when Maeve says, uh, or Dolores says something like, yeah, she, she says, those were just ropes that they used to chain us down these relationships that we thought we had. So her relationship, her love for Teddy, her love for her father, Maeve's love, Maeve's love for her daughter. These are all just tethers that held people down, uh, uh, hosts down from making free choices. But Maeve says, is that what you use to, to make yourself feel comfortable with the fact of what you've actually done? Now, well, yeah. the, oh, I was just gonna say, just to contrast that, the scene when Maeve in this episode controls hosts, she, I think I understand the process now. She only controls hosts that are not conscious because she goes through two, two to three um, hosts and then she gets to Lawrence and she realizes that she shouldn't do whatever she did to them to Lawrence or she can't maybe. And she instead persuades him through logic to... Right, she to, articulates what she has to say to him rather than using the force of her personality. Right, and so she's seeming to have a more grain, granular understanding of what what it is that they're actually doing. Whereas, and, and I think that the idea is that we should un apply that also to Dolores, that Dolores is maybe a few moments behind Maeve in that consciousness, but that she's on the same trajectory. Well, you know, so I might say uh, opposite from that, that they're actually on opposite trajectories and that they're actually approaching this from different points of view. And what, how I see Maeve's power is very much like the Jedi suggestion power is that, since she embodies free choice, she immediately has a, an effect on those who are unfree around her, and it manifests through her sort of mind control. And those who are already free, um, she has to articulate. She has to help them to see through inquiry, you, you might say. Because, so, well, why I contrast Dolores with Maeve is that even though Maeve has developed so incredibly, she has not given up her relationship to her friends and to her um, daughter. her daughter. And she's, in fact, created a new relationship with a human, which is the status of is very much unclear right now. Because with it looks humans, like multiple humans, right? She, right. Has, she has one that is totally for the um, Asian guy, the Chinese guy. He's all for her. And then the, the writer is seemingly turning for her. He, I, I think that's the idea. Well, but yeah. yeah I'm sorry, go ahead. I interrupted. Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe he betrayed her. We're not quite sure yet. Because she's definitely gotten shot up due to well, something. Well, he did betray her, but I think that he is regretting that decision, I think. Regardless. Yeah. Uh, if I betray you and, and then regret it, I have yeah. betrayed you. Right, 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 right. So, so, yeah, right. So there are a lot of interesting wrinkles here. But some, perhaps the most interesting wrinkle is that with all her new gifts, rather than now becoming inflated and thinking herself a god, what does she have to witness in her lack of power? Well, she sees just like she's seen a million times before her daughter run and scream from the ghost nation and the ghost nation brave run and grab her daughter and tear her away helplessly. What the ultimate lesson of consciousness seems to be 
is that you cannot alter the patterns of existence and that you now only see your place within them and your utter impotence to change certain things in the world. And that that actually causes you greater suffering in the world than if you were unconscious. And so whereas Dolores is now having grander and grander plans and making more and more nefarious moves in order to get to them, Maeve seems to be coming sort of full circle and seeing that even with all these amazing powers and all this insight into how things are, how much has she really changed? What has changed? It's almost as if the insights were granted don't give us greater power over the world, but greater power to understand what will always happen in the world, but not the power to change it. So our own, yeah, our own learning will not necessarily give us the power to change, but will give us more ability to perceive the world. Will help us. us to understand what is most meaningful, right? It's like even if we understood potentially everything about ourselves, right? Uh, that wouldn't necessarily mean that we could, like Westworld seems to be suggesting attain immortality, nor would immortality even necessarily be good. Perhaps instead of looking for immortality or to change our nature, we should be trying to understand our nature more. And that might lead to us taking our decisions um, more seriously and living a more meaningful life, understanding that suffering is going to be a part of it and that we ought to just embrace that, that we ought to just pick up the world if we're Atlas or the cross if we're Christ. Um, I don't know. I'm just thinking this through as I say this to you. And it's that, that, that scene was just so striking to me, uh, yeah. with me watching her daughter get taken again, even though well, she's not necessarily her daughter this time, but it, it's the same situation. Yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, it makes me, so what you're saying makes sense because I, I, based on the, you know, preview for the next episode and sort of, we've learned a little bit more about just very little about ghost nation. I have the right. feeling that we're going to learn that th- they are not nefarious, that they are yeah. actually a, a benevolent force. Uh, and it seems like that character um, who did, did you watch the show, the TV show Fargo? No, no, but I have seen oh, the movie. He's uh, he plays a great character in the second season. Uh, similar, similar character in that it looks like he sort of understands the actions and the events of the narrative in a way deeper than other characters do. Um, but anyway, so the actor is great, but uh, I just have a hunch that he um, taking this girl is actually going to be better. And that what you're saying about Maeve makes sense because then she wouldn't understand the fact that they are actually trying to protect her rather than to right. harm her. They're not trying to. And so that's interesting because that seems to be the, the great point because so the preview for the ghost nation next time around shows them not only in their, their battle gear with the white paint all over them, but as humans and the ghost nation leader has a beautiful wife, apparently, or sister, somebody who seems to be very significant to him. And so what we're noticing is that the humans have people who are significant to them, the hosts in each different groups, Maeve, whether a prostitute or Dolores, a farm girl or a ghost nation tribal leader, all of these people have people they're meaningful to. They all symbolically have the same relations, which mean the same things to them. And what seems to mess this up is the other coming from outside and having mm-hmm. the evil from them projected onto them. It's this encounter with the other, whether it be a human, like the man in black, whether it be Dolores with her army, or whether it, it be even other, other hosts like the Ghost Nation running into Maeve on the homestead. The other outside you who comes in with different customs 
or different ways of being seems to bring um, the horror of non-existence or the horror of change into one's world and cause one to attempt to defend that which is meaningful to them. And so even if that which is coming from outside will improve your life and your relations to other, it is always immediately perceived as threat. And I think that's what's shown by Maeve, right? That she, when she sees her daughter get taken away, there's only one thing that can mean. So potentially what we'll learn in this next episode, well, actually that was a wrong assumption as, as well. And so perhaps what we're also seeing is that part of learning is not only suffering and coming to consciousness, but being able to let go of your prior assumptions about the nature of reality. Um, and, and your place within it. And your place, yeah, and of course your place within it. Because uh, unless you understand, re- I mean, those are the two poles, it seems to be, you and reality. Unless, if you don't understand, at least to some extent, if you don't have some balanced understanding of both of those things that you, you attain through some pragmatic realizations through uh, acting successfully in the world, um, you are like Dante in the dark wood. You are disoriented. And um, well, that, that's so, sort of the most interesting thing that I would say that Dolores seems to be the one who, to use Peter Abernathy's words now, you don't even know where you are. Because she's the one who's giving up more and more of her relations. She's changing everything around herself. Isolating herself, yeah. Isolating herself in that Luciferian way like the man in black, right? And um, so she, uh, in becoming more and more disoriented, it seems like she's losing more and more of herself. Um, And whereas Maeve seems to be regaining herself, um, almost as if, once you become self-conscious, you attempt to become the original unity that you've lost in becoming self-conscious and thus sort of uh, divided against yourself. It's almost as if Dolores is becoming more divided against herself, though she is being successful at the moment, seemingly, whereas Maeve is becoming uh, less divided, though she's full of bullet holes, and well, so is the man in black. Yeah. yeah. But if the lesson is often, as we've said, that suffering brings about greater consciousness then it does seem like the man in black and Maeve, should they survive, which it was almost a Game of Thrones episode with them, um, they might have some interesting lessons to, uh, to bring back with us. Well, uh, Mr. Babcock, as you know, I'm, I'm sort of strapped for time today. Is there any note that we should end on? I know we didn't get back to that original thought about who's pulling Dolores' strings or whether she's truly free now or not. Well, I- no, I think we, you know, I'm, there's no concrete answer. I think that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's consciousness itself and it's debatable. So I think that our conversation elucidates that. Um, yeah, no, n- uh, nothing, um, you know, nothing that's standing out too much. Uh, I, I think that that la- our last segment here tied well into the beginning where we were talking about the purpose of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, yeah, we're uh, starting to get into our larger project here. And, yeah. and, once we get closer to, I think, a thousand episodes or so, perhaps it will start to take, <laughs> start to take shape. I mean, we, we might need- as well do every episode we've ever seen of anything. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Well, Mr. Babcock, this is wonderful. And thank you. And, you know, maybe I'll call you back later and we'll do another second hour of this. Uh, and uh, just to let all the listeners know, we're now on summer vacation. So uh, looks like it's going to be time to 
pump out some good stuff, some thoughtful, contemplative, consciousness-invoking stuff. Yeah. We'll maybe even do an episode from Spain. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you can find a way to uh, call from Spain and I'll be in Nashville, I mean, this technology thing, it is a wonderful tool. It is magical. So let's use, let's use it well. All right, well, Mr. Ravcock, thank you very much. And this was either episode 56 or 57. I think it's 56, but I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. It will say in the title. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time. Goodbye.